Good morning, Grace Gospel Church. It's very nice to see you all today. I want to begin by asking you a question. It's a very simple question. Is there anyone here who has a hobby? You don't need to raise your hands. Just think of what the correct answer is. Has a hobby, perhaps a a pastime, a, a sport that they like to participate in regularly, or perhaps a sport you used to participate in when you were younger, uh, think, for example, uh, I know some of, some of you men and ladies uh, like to golf. Uh, think about golf for a minute. Golf has some rules. There are certain things you must do to play within the rules, and there are certain things you cannot do if you're to play within the rules. But golf also has some things that you have a little more flexibility about. Uh, for example... Your swing. There's good swings and bad bad swings. There's good swing mechanics. There's bad swing mechanics. I think of that video from, must be over 20 years old, of Charles Barkley swinging the golf club. The poor guy. Great basketball player. Terrible swing with his knees going all over and barely could hit the wall. That's clearly a bad swing. And you'd want to correct that. It's not that it violates any rule of golf. If you grab a little booklet with all the rules of golf, Charles Barkley's swing would not be in there saying you can't swing like this. So there's some flexibility. Although with golf, there's generally considered to be uh, a good form in order to golf properly, hit the ball properly. Uh, the same thing is true if uh, I've seen this happen. A bunch of people are sitting around watching. Uh, perhaps it's an NBA game or a college basketball game. And everybody's a coach, everybody's a referee from the lazy boy or the sofa. Illegal screen, they cry out. Or uh, football, offsides. Defensive holding, roughing the passer. Everybody knows there's certain things that you just don't do. They violate the rules. But yet there's flexibility. You don't have to call a running play every first down. There's flexibility as well. What does all this have to do with thinking biblically about the church? There are certain things relative to the nature of the church and the practice of the church, of the local church on Sunday mornings, that are mandated in Scripture, believe it or not. And then there's other areas where there is flexibility. I've actually had Christians over the years tell me that there's nothing in the New Testament telling us how to practice church. When we gather together, assemble together as a corporate body of believers. In fact, I even had one believer tell me once, I don't know why your church has elders. 
The New Testament has nothing to say about elders, which is, of course, patently false. I don't think that individual ever read the New Testament to make such a statement. Why should we care about this? This is possibly going to be the most academic of any message I've ever preached on a Sunday morning. I know we're big on application. Where does the application come in? The application comes in because as believers in Christ, as Christ followers, as Christians, we should love what he loves. We just sang that, didn't we? We said, whom you love, I'll love. Also, what you love, I'll love. Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. Christ loved the church. You and I ought to love the church as well. If it's important to Christ, it ought to be important to us. Sadly, some, the church is not very important to their professed Christianity. Hebrews 10.25 says, do not forsake. The idea is stop forsaking. Do not forsake the assembling together, as is the habit of some. It was a habit in the first century. It's a habit for some today, and it's so much easier because they can just watch a live stream or they can later in the day, if they're sleeping in, watch a message that's preached at some local church. Those individuals do not understand what the local church is about. It's more than just that beautiful, God-glorifying music and the worship that went up to God as a result of it from the hearts and souls and minds of everyone here both on the stage and standing, singing together. There's more than just what goes on here on the stage and in the seats. We'll examine that in more detail in a future message in this series, Lord willing. But it, the church should be important to us. The title of today's message is The Church and the Churches. Now, I didn't make that phrase up. It's a common phrase. There's even been a book written with this title, The Church and the Churches. We're going to find out exactly what is meant by that. First, I think we need to define what the word church with a capital C, church with a lower C, and churches, the plural of church, means. What does it mean? As most of you know, the New Testament was written in a common Greek dialect that was spread throughout parts of Europe and Asia Minor when Alexander the Great conquered that area. He left behind Greek culture and Greek language. In our Lord's day, the disciples not only could speak Aramaic and read Hebrew, they could speak Greek as well. And some of them probably understood a little Latin 
a Roman soldier told you, halt, stop, you better know Latin for that. The original Greek word that's used in the New Testament literally means called out ones. Those called out. To call out. How the word was used in Greek culture and in Greek writing, it was used of, in, in, in ancient Greece, only men could vote, only citizen men of a city-state they would gather or assemble together to discuss politics and to vote on matters. That's just one example of it. That gathering, that assembly, in the New Testament, that same Greek word is translated church. It's a gathering or an assembly of a group of individuals for a particular common purpose. Just like we're doing Today, we've gathered together to worship the Lord God and His beloved Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We've gathered together to sing praise, to thank Him, to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word, to fellowship with one another. And there'll be a future message on true biblical worship and, and fellowship as well in this series. So the word church merely means an assembly or gathering for a common purpose. I like that it is translated church in the New Testament because it reminds us that what we are doing is something that is religious in nature. When I say religious, for a lot of people, that's a bad word. Christianity isn't, relig isn't about religion, it's about relationship. Yes, that's true, relationship with God and Christ. But when I use religious here, I'm saying versus political, versus social. We're here for a religious purpose, to serve and worship our Lord and God. The title of the message was The Church and the Churches. What that's really talking about is the universal church. Maybe you've never heard that before, and the rest of this message will be primarily focused on the universal church. We need to understand this in order to correctly understand the local church, which Lord willing, we'll talk about next week. The universal church and the local church, or the local churches. So what is the universal church? Scholars and theologians use this term, universal church, to describe every true believer in Christ from the day of Pentecost, when the church was born in Acts chapter 2, up until the point of the rapture, the snatching up of the church to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. So at this point in time, the universal church is almost 2,000 years old, whereas Grace Gospel Church is what, 43 or 44 years old, something along that line, maybe a little more than that now. Some of you might have been here at the beginning or very close to the beginning. 
the universal church is made up of all true believers in Christ throughout the church age and all over the world. It's not restricted to location. It's not restricted to a gathering in one building. It's not restricted to any point in time. In fact, even all over the world today, if you were to number every true believer in Christ, it would only be part of the universal church. Why? The apostles, for example, are no longer alive. There were many true believers who died within a few years of of our Lord's death or by the end of the first century or a thousand years later. They're simply not alive. The universal church is every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the second series on thinking biblically that we did, we gave three messages on who we are in Christ. And they actually relate to the church. And we saw three analogies were used. They were easy to remember. They all begin with the letter B. A building, a bride, and a body. And two of those are going to come out here pretty clearly. You may have noticed it from the verses that our brother Joey read for us. Two of these analogies will come out again. We're not going to explore them deeply like we did last time, but we are going to make note of them and have something to say briefly about them. So what is the universal church? A mistake people make when they read the book of Ephesians is that they see church mentioned and they think, oh, that always means the local church gathered together in Ephesus. That's simply not the case. Most of the references to church refer to the universal church, and I'll show you why as we look at a couple of those references. Paul says that to him, Paul the apostle, to him was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church. There is a sense that the universal church shines the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God, out from its local gatherings. But it's done universally throughout the church age and in every place where true believers are gathered. But notice, and I need to bring this out because in the modern American church, there is more and more this idea that the local church is to shine out in the community. And that's its primary purpose. That's simply not found in the New Testament. I'm not saying that the local church should not be a testimony in the community, but most of the instruction that's given in the New Testament about that is given to the individual believers who happen to fellowship at a local church. There's not this instruction given to the church itself. But in this case, notice how the manifold wisdom of God is to be made known through the church. Not horizontally to the community, but to the rulers and the authorities, not in Washington, D.C., 
but in heavenly places. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. He, he, he's talking about the gospel of God, the gospel that saves, that was implemented through the body and blood of Jesus Christ when he hung on the cross bearing the sins of the world. And he says, these are things that angels desire to look into. He's saying the same thing Paul writes here. Rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Brothers and sisters, have you ever thought about this? When we gather together to praise and worship the Lord, angels, rulers and authorities in heavenly places are looking down, scratching their heads. Don't take that literally. In wonder and amazement. How did God, through the foolishness of the preaching of the cross, save such horrible sinners, such rebels against God? Look at them now, praising and worshiping God. Look at them now, being interested in what God has to say in His Word, when before they could care less. They marvel at this. They wonder about it. The manifold wisdom of God through the church. Now, it's the universal church, but every local church is an expression of that universal church. Most of the things that are true of the universal church should be true of the local church and even of the individual believer who gather and assemble as part of that local church. What is the local church? Again, in Ephesians chapter 1, what is the universal church? We read about it in Ephesians 1.22. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He gave them to the church. Notice singular. The word in Greek and in English is singular. He's talking about the universal church. He's not talking about the church at Ephesus only. Is the church of Ephesus the only one that is part of Christ's body? Is the church at Ephesus the only one who experiences the fullness of Christ? No other church did? No, that's simply not the case. We see Christ walked in the midst of the golden lampstands in Revelation chapter 1. And... Those lampstands are actually interpreted for John. The seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches of Asia. One of them was Ephesus. There were others, Thyatira, uh, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and three others. There were seven altogether. Uh, so church here is the universal church. That is his body. He brings the body analogy in. What is the universal church? Speaking of Christ, the entire context in Philippians 1, the verses that precede it and come after it, speak of Jesus Christ. He is also head of the body, the church. The church, the universal church, is his body. And he's the head. He's the head of the church. Think about that. He's using a body analogy. Now, here's a body up here. 
pity my wife. She has to live with me. I have a head. What does the head do? The head gives instructions to the body. When the alarm goes off in the morning and I'm all tired and don't want to get up, it's not my feet that start singing, this is the day that the Lord has made. Or rise and shine and give God the glory, glory. My feet don't start moving out from under the blanket and on the floor and they drag my body out. They don't do that. No, my head tells my body, sit up and swing your legs out from under the blankets and stand up, get up. That's my head. My head gives direction. My hands don't decide what they're going to do on their own. When my head gives them instruction, they, they don't talk back at me. No, 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 I don't want to do that. They don't give direction. I hate when it does that. No, my head gives direction to my body. Jesus Christ is the one who gives direction to the universal church. He's the head of the universal church. As we'll see next week, he's also the head of the local church. Headship is somewhat synonymous with lordship. And therefore, Christ ought to be your head. In fact, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Christ is the head of every man. Everyone. He is the head of every man and every woman. He should be the head and Lord of everyone who professes faith in him. Is he your head this morning? Do you receive your instruction, your direction in life from him as your head, your sovereign Lord? It should be. I hope and pray that it is. I hope that we examine our lives in light of that. And that we're not giving direction to our head, but instead we're receiving direction and instruction from Him. The universal church has offices. Offices are, I mean, you think about a corporation. There are officers of a corporation. And the highest officer is the chief executive officer. So when scholars and theologians talk about offices in the universal church and in the local church, they're talking about the ones that seem to be in charge. In the case of the universal church, there's one true office, and that is the head. And he put all things in subjection under Christ's feet and gave Christ as head over all things to the church, which is his body. Christ is the head. He is the chief executive officer, so to speak, of the church. He is the Lord and master of the church. There are no other offices in the church. You know, it says in Titus chapter 1 that elders are supposed to be able to teach in sound doctrine, true teaching in accordance with God's word, 
and refute those who contradict. The reason why I stress this one true office is that there is a major form of unbiblical Christianity that advocates for another office, a single man who rules over the church on the earth. And he holds that office. He has a title because men love titles. I gotta have a title. What's wrong with the title slave? We're all slaves of Christ. What's wrong with the title brother and sister? Something we all share. But, but in this false form of Christianity, this unbiblical form of Christianity, they have one man ruling over everyone on the earth. And when he speaks in certain capacities, it's supposed to be as if the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking through him. This teaching's totally foreign to the New Testament. If you have more questions about that, uh, feel free to ask me. But Christ is the one true office. He is the head, and he gives direction through his word. This one true office, again, it's the head. Christ is also the head of the body. The church, he is the, it's clearly Christ. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Preeminence in everything. The word firstborn there does not primarily mean the first to be resurrected. That's not what it is. It is a term of prominence. It's a term of preeminence. It's sort of like, a, think of the English royalty, the English crown. A king has two sons. Which one is preeminent and going to ascend to the throne to be king? It's the eldest son, not the second son. It's a term, the, the term in royalty is primogenitor. It's order of succession. Who's going to be king. It's the firstborn son. When you read about Jesus being the firstborn of the Father, the firstborn from the dead, he has priority and preeminence above all other of God's children. Now, what about apostles and prophets? They're part of the universal church, but I don't really think of them as an office. They, they had a role to play in the early church. The apostles were Christ's representatives, and the prophets were God's mouthpieces. They either spoke or they wrote. The office of prophet was not restricted to just men. There were some women. Philip, one of the first seven deacons, had four daughters that were prophetesses. But in terms of writing the scriptures, all of those were men. Prophets spoke what God wanted them to speak. What is an apostle? I, I think we need to... Uh, 
talk about that word apostle. Apostle in its simplest form means messenger. Just a messenger. Well, Paul, doesn't the word angel mean messenger? Yes, it does. So how, does, how, how is an apostle different from an angel? Apostle, if you want to expand on messenger, apostle literally means one who is sent, a sent one. It's one who is sent with a message. He has a message from his boss, from his king, from his Lord, that he's supposed to deliver exactly word for word what his Lord and master, what his king wants him to deliver. The closest thing, let me illustrate, might, I like to use the word herald. Now that might be meaningful to some of you. Others might say, well, herald, I still don't have my mind wrapped around what, what you mean, Paul. Uh, maybe, could you illustrate? Sure. Think back to medieval England. You know, times of kings and castles and knights. That time period. Imagine for a moment an official riding into a village on horseback with a dozen lightly armored soldiers. And he goes to the center of the village, dismounts his horse, the village gathers, and he takes a scroll and he opens it. Hear ye, hear ye, the proclamation of King John. Hunting deer in the king's forest is no longer allowed upon penalty of death. Closes up the scroll, gets on his horse, goes to the next village. He only says a herald. That man would be a herald. He only says the words that the king wants him to say. That's what apostles did. They said exactly what their king, the Lord Jesus Christ, wanted them to say. I'm really trying to stress this because for the last 20 years, there has been a growing movement in evangelical Christianity to recognize new modern-day apostles. What they don't realize is they're stealing that teaching from the Mormon, from the Mormon uh, unbiblical form of Christianity, the Mormon cult. They've, ha they've had that since around 1825, apostles. And what this new apostolic reformation is doing is adopting this false teaching. We're going to see in the rest of this message why there are not apostles today. First thing I, I want you to see is that Christ was an apostle. Did you realize that? Christ was an apostle. In fact, we learned about that. David preached a message, I believe. He preached this passage in Hebrews. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus was an apostle, a sent one, one sent with a message. He said twice, the words that the Father gave to me, these are the words I speak. He was a herald. He only said the words that the Father gave to him. In fact, Christ was sent by the Father. Remember, 
Apostle means a sent one or one who is sent with a message. The Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. This word sent is related to the word for apostle. Now, I don't always tell you what the Greek words are, but I want you to hear that they're alike. They differ only in the last two letters if you write them out in Greek. The word apostle is the Greek word apostolos, apostolos. This verb, apostello, they're related words. They're spelled the same except for the last two letters. The Father sent as an apostle, as a herald, with a precise message. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Christ sent the apostles. The eleven proceeded to Galilee. Jesus came up and spoke to them. This is after his resurrection in Matthew 28. This is the great commission passage. The eleven. Judas had gone out and hung himself. He was a false apostle, even though Christ called him. He was not a true believer. He was called the son of perdition. The eleven that remained proceeded to Galilee. Jesus came up and spoke to them. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Christ sent the apostles. Well, what about Paul? Uh, Paul the apostle, who wrote 13, possibly 14 books of the New Testament. He wrote all those letters. Um, he's not one of those 11. In Acts chapter 9, as he's on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians and put them to death, the Lord appears to him, he's blinded, he can't see, and he doesn't know what's going on. He recognizes the one who blinded him is Jesus Christ. Lord, who are you? I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, was the reply. And now he's waiting to be healed and receive his sight back. And the Lord said to him, the him here is a disciple, Ananias, go. For he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Christ sent Paul as an apostle as well. He will say later on, I'm, you know, I'm the least of all the apostles because he was as one born out of time. He didn't walk with the Lord before the Lord's crucifixion. What are the qualifications to be an apostle? I want to show you biblically what they are. This is important to me. It ought to be important to you. I, the Lord brings people to Grace Gospel Church, to fellowship and, and be part of this local church. I'm saddened when people leave the church. Some leave for good reasons. I've even counseled some people to leave when I've understood what's going on in their life and so on. You know, some people drive over an hour. That's acceptable in California, I know, having lived there, but it's not acceptable in southern New England. It, it's tough. You know, so sometimes you advise them to fellowship at a local church. An hour away might not be local. Or maybe their family is divided. You should worship as a family, I believe. So, sometimes there's good reasons to leave a local church. You change jobs, you're in the military, and you're transferred. 
to another part of the country, there's understandably good reasons. But sadly, most people have bad reasons for leaving the church. And when somebody tells me they're leaving, if they tell me where they're going, it doesn't happen very much. Uh, it happened soon, you know, more often, uh, almost seven years ago when I first got here. Uh, I, they might tell me where they're going. And when they do, I always try to find a website for that church. And I try to watch, if I can, if they have videos, or I'll listen to the audio of at least two messages from the preachers of that church. And then I'm almost always quite saddened by what I hear. Some of these people have been at Grace Gospel Church for 25 to 35 years. They sat under excellent teaching of God's word from the founding pastor of this church. They heard sound teaching from that pastor's son-in-law. We hear sound teaching from Gilson and David. And I'm grieved by the choices that they make and the churches that they go to. Some of them even lean towards this new apostolic reformation. If at any point you ever need to leave Grace Gospel Church because you've been transferred or you decide you just want a fellowship at a, another church or we don't have a key ministry that you feel you really need in order to grow in your Christian life, I want you to go to a biblically sound church not a church that's falling into error, that's not going to help you grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He loved his church and laid down his life for it. The church should be important to every one of us. It shouldn't just be something that we roll the dice, so to speak, and, oh, pick a church. Okay, that one. That, that's not the way to pick a church. with this apostolic reformation growing and its continuing influence, I want to show you why none of those individuals who call themselves apostles are apostles. I happen to know one of them personally. He's been over my house in Connecticut for barbecue, made him a ribeye. He and his wife came over. And now he's an apostle and exercising authority over others as an apostle. When he speaks, it's as if Christ is speaking. He said in 2009, Jesus appeared to him in his room and called him to be an apostle. There's no way to verify that. So what he says, though. So I have some firsthand experience with these individuals, or at least one of them. Here are the biblical qualifications to be an apostle. And you'll hear from some of these on the radio, on Christian radio or Christian television. The apostles were personally appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that in Luke 6 and Mark 3. He, that is Jesus, called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he also named 
as apostles. Jesus called them, appointed them as apostles. Mark 3, verse 14, and Jesus appointed 12 so that they would be with him and he could send them out to preach. They were personally appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first requirement. Well, what about Paul? Well, Paul was personally appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ in Acts 9.15. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Christ chose Paul as an instrument to be a herald, an apostle to the Gentiles. The apostles were personally given authority by the Lord Jesus. In Matthew 10, Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority. Now, the names of the 12 apostles are, and they're listed, the 12 apostles. He gave them authority. Apostles are personally given authority by the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was personally given authority by the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 13.10, For this reason I am writing to you these things while absent. So when present, I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. He says, authority was given to him by the Lord. Oh yeah, but wait, Paul. Paul's only claiming this. How do we know this is true? Well, if you think Paul is lying, then guess what? The Holy Spirit is lying too because who inspired the written word of God? Who inspired these words? It was the Holy Spirit. In legal terminology, he's subjoining perjury, knowing that this is a lie and allowing this lie to be disseminated. Our courts don't allow lawyers to do that. Lawyers cannot allow testimony even from their own client which they know is not true what do our courts have a higher standard than the lord god than the courts of heaven of course not if paul's lying here then the holy spirit is lying but none of us are going to say that furthermore you don't just have to go by paul's word paul displayed the evidence that he was one of christ's apostles i should have been commended by you the Corinthians, who rejected his apostleship because, well, he didn't walk with the Lord while the Lord was alive. And we don't like what he's telling us, that we can't sin the way we want to sin. So we're going to reject his apostleship. And in 2 Corinthians, after being rejected in 1 Corinthians, he now defends his apostleship. He says, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Paul even raised the dead. He preached too long into the night and a young man, Eutychus, fell off a rafter, hit the floor, probably broke his neck and died, and Paul laid hands on him and raised him to life. You all better hope I don't pray, uh, preach into the night because I can't raise the dead. I'm not an apostle. No one alive today is an apostle. 
Apostles show signs and wonders and miracles. They were verifiable. Everybody saw them. There was no denying these. Unlike claimed miracles from some of the modern day false apostles. The apostles were personally taught by the Lord Jesus Christ. There's so many verses you can use. I mean, this goes without saying, Christ taught them. When he gave the parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13, after he uh, gave them the parable of the sower, he teaches them what that means. His disciples said, Lord, explain this to us. And he taught them. But here, the ten became indignant with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said, he teaches them about humility. The apostles were personally taught by the Lord Jesus. You don't like this verse reference? Fine. You can find dozens and dozens of verse references that Christ taught the apostles. Paul was personally taught by the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know that? In Galatians chapter 1, the gospel which was preached by me, he's writing this because some went to the churches in Asia Minor, in Galatia, that Paul had planted, and they tried to undermine his ministry. They said, Paul's not preaching the real gospel. Uh, that's not the real gospel. You need to be circumcised if you're a man, and you need to keep the law of Moses if you want to be a Christ follower. That was the false gospel they were preaching. Paul says, in defense, the gospel which was preached by me, I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Even this man that I've had in my home, who's now an apostle, he never received the gospel directly from Jesus Christ. But Paul did. The eleven did. They sat with Christ. They lived with Christ. They were taught by Christ. He says, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia. And there it's thought that that's over those years that he was in Arabia, Paul was instructed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he returns to Damascus. The apostles spoke Christ's words. Remember I said a herald is careful to speak Christ's words? Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, says, but to the married, I give instruction. And so that they don't understand, he says, not I, but the Lord. But to the rest, the non-married, I say, not the Lord. He's very careful here when he wanted to render his opinion on something that he did not receive teaching from the Lord Jesus Christ. The only reason why he says, I give instruction, not I, but the Lord, is because he's going to give them his opinion afterwards. He gives many instructions without saying, it is the Lord who taught me this. It is the Lord who wanted me to tell you this. This is the only time he says, but to the rest, I say, not the Lord. He's very careful to point out when he's giving his opinion, and then, you know what he'll say about this? I think I too have the Holy Spirit. Not just you, but I think I have the Holy Spirit, and I can speak wisdom, God's wisdom in my opinions. Apostles spoke Christ's words. 
the exact words that Christ wanted them to speak because the apostles were also prophets. So this morning, are you thinking biblically about the universal church? Do you now understand what the universal church is? This is just foundational. Lord willing, next week we'll look at the practice of the local church, certain aspects of it. What is the local church, the structure of the local church? Do we get to make it up? The structure of some churches are different than other churches. Are they all okay? Are they all taught in Scripture? Are some of them forbidden in Scripture? Do some of them violate what is taught in Scripture? We'll look at that. See, here at Grace Gospel Church, we try to do things as closely to the Scriptures as possible. We try to exclude as much human opinion as possible and look to the Scriptures, see where do they give us guidance and instruction as to how to gather together, what we should do when we should gather together, the structure of our church, what the focus of the church should be, what are the primary focuses of the church, We try to glean all that from Scripture. We needed to begin with the universal church, and Lord willing, next week we'll look at the local church. But if you're here this morning, and you've never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are not part of the universal church. His bride, His body, the building that He is erecting. The universal church is composed of all those who have placed their faith and trust for salvation and eternal life in Jesus Christ and Him alone and what He did on the cross when He bore the sins of the world in His body and He bled and died. If you've never trusted in that message, if you have any other way other than through Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, if you have any other way that you're trying to get to heaven by, to earn God's salvation by, that is the wrong way. Jesus Christ said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There is no way to the Father other than through Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. If you haven't trusted in the true biblical gospel message, then you're not part of the universal church. But if you want to be part of that universal church, Christ's bride that he's going to come for and take to be with himself forever, you need to repent. Change your mind about who Jesus is. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a fine moral example. He is the Son of God and Savior of the world. You need to change your mind, repent about who you are. You're not a good person. None of us are good people apart from Jesus Christ. We all deserve God's wrath and judgment. Jesus Christ took upon himself God's wrath and judgment. He cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? when he hung on the cross. He cried that out so you would never have to 
cry out those words when God casts you into the outer darkness and there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Repent. You're a sinner who deserves only God's wrath and judgment. Repent. Change your mind. You cannot work your way to heaven. The Scripture says, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. We can't work our way there. You can't buy our way there. Jesus said, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, all the riches in the world, but forfeits his soul? What can he give in exchange for his soul? Nothing. Not all the riches in the world that he, required, that he acquired. Repent. You can't buy your way to heaven. Repent. Change your mind. You can't pray your way to heaven. You can't attend Grace Gospel Church to get to heaven. Repent. Turn from your sins and turn to God. Turn to Him and cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, the way the tax collector did in the Scriptures. Cry out for God's mercy. Repent, turn from your sin and turn to God. Call on Him and He will save you. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Place all your faith and trust, not just intellectual agreement with some facts, but from the heart. Trust in Him and Him alone. And you'll never be disappointed that you did. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you for your goodness to us. How we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you loved the church and you gave yourself up for her, for us. Thank you for calling us to be part of your body, your bride, this building that you're building, part of your church. Thank you for calling us out and translating us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son, dear God. Help us, dear God, to not only love whom you love, but to love what you love. Help us to love your church that you're building, Lord Jesus. We ask all this for your name's sake. Amen. We thank you, Paul. You know, I don't know if we could have heard a clearer explanation of what the church is or a clearer explanation of the, of, of the gospel which Paul has just given. And this being Mother's Day, um, I don't know what greater gift any mom that knows Christ as Lord and Savior could receive but to see her children accept the same Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And if there's a mom that's not saved, I don't know what greater gift she could get than her children, again, being saved and showing that light of Jesus Christ, showing the hope that they have, knowing that they're going to be in heaven one day and sharing that with their mom. So as we close, we just want to pray for um, anybody that may be unsaved. And also, um, as we go, just pray for our church.
Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the message we hear today. We just thank you for anointing um, such preachers to share your word, Lord. We just thank you for the truth of your word. We just thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you've done for us, paving a way for our salvation through the cross. We just thank you for you being the head of our church where we can come to you and learn from you. We just pray for anyone here that may not know you as Lord and Savior. And as the gospel was just explained, Lord, we just pray, Lord, that they will repent of their sins, that they will obey the calling of the Holy Spirit, will change their ways, and they will accept you as their Lord and Savior and walk with you. We just thank you for this church. We ask for your blessing on each and every one of us as we leave. It's a special blessing on the moms today. We just thank you, Lord, for being such a loving God. And may in all things, Lord, may we always give you the worship, praise, honor, and glory that you deserve. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.